Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the questions surrounding Putin's health and investigate a classified U.S. report that he underwent treatment for advanced cancer in April and that there was an assassination attempt on Putin's life in March. Joining us is William Arkin, a senior editor at Newsweek and one of America's premier military experts whose investigative work has appeared on the front pages of the New York Times, the Washington Post and the Los Angeles Times. Until recently, he was an NBC News analyst and reporter for 30 years, and he also served in Army Intelligence in West Berlin during the Cold War and has been a consultant to wide-ranging organizations, including the United States Air Force, the United Nations Secretary General, Human Rights Watch, and the Natural Resources Defense Council. The best-selling author of more than a dozen books, including The Generals Have No Clothes, The Untold Story of Our Endless Wars. His latest book is On That Day, The Definitive Timeline of 9-11, and we'll discuss his latest article at Newsweek, exclusive Putin Treated for Cancer in April, U.S. Intelligence Report says. Then, with Biden's trip to Israel and Saudi Arabia postponed until July, We'll look into how much the American president will have to bow before the entitled and murderous Prince Mohammed bin Salman, about to be crowned king, who could help lower the price of oil but so far has refused to do so, but is instead showering billions on Team Trump, who MBS and his ally Putin clearly want back in the White House in 2024. Joining us is Sarah Lee Whitson, the executive director of Democracy in the Arab World Now, Dawn, who was formerly the executive director of Human Rights Watch's Middle East and North Africa division, where she oversaw 19 countries with staff located in 10 countries. And she's led dozens of advocacy and investigative missions throughout the region, focusing on issues of armed conflict, accountability, legal reform, migrant workers, and political rights. Then finally, we'll go to the UK, which is in the midst of a festival of pomp and ceremony honoring Queen Elizabeth's Platinum Jubilee. Joining us is Polly Toynbee, a columnist for The Guardian, who was formerly BBC's social affairs editor, columnist and associate editor of The Independent, co-editor of The Washington Monthly, and a reporter and feature writer for The Observer. She is the co-author of Dismembered, How the Attack on the State Harms Us All, and we will discuss her latest article at The Guardian. For today, even Republicans like me can put up with the pomp with a drink in hand. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is William Arkin, a senior editor at Newsweek and one of America's premier military experts whose investigative work has appeared on the front pages of the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Los Angeles Times. Until recently, he was an NBC News analyst and reporter for 30 years. He also served in Army Intelligence in West Berlin during the Cold War and has been a consultant to a wide-ranging organizations, including the United States Air Force, the United Nations Secretary General, Human Rights Watch, and the Natural Resources Defense Council. He's the best-selling author of more than a dozen books, including The Generals Have No Clothes, The Untold Story of Our Endless Wars, and his latest book is On That Day, The Definitive Timeline of 9-11. And he has an article at Newsweek, exclusive, Putin treated for cancer in April, U.S. intelligence report says. Welcome to Background Briefing, William Arkin. Thanks for having me on again. So tell us more about this exclusive Putin treated for cancer in April, U.S. intelligence reports, because there have obviously been rumors that he's sick, which have been strenuously denied, of course, by the Kremlin. What kind of verification is there that he's sick? Well, I don't know what the verification is. All I know is what my sources say U.S. intelligence has reported. And again, this is a very difficult issue to surmise. 
it's done on the basis of contact with foreign leaders in which they provide information back to U.S. intelligence about the state of mind of of uh, somebody. It's it's supposition, if you will. It's not it's not they don't have the vials of blood. They have an ob- observance of how often Putin appears. They they know how, who he meets with. They know what he looks like. Uh, when he disappears from the scene for three weeks, then, of course, obviously, everybody's alarm bells go up. But the fact that Putin is sick, the fact that he uh, is not as vital as he once was, where we saw all the pictures of Putin playing hockey and, and, and riding horses, it, it, that is a fact. Now, is he ill with cancer? I can't answer that question, Ian. I can just tell you that this is what the U.S. intelligence is reporting to the White House. And by the way, though the Kremlin denies that Putin is sick, uh, the Biden administration does as well. They reacted to my article by saying uh, that uh, there were no such reports. Now, I, I can take that in two ways. I mean, I'm, I, I've had the government deny stories that I've done before as well. What the government is saying, which is disingenuous, is that they haven't sent any such reports to to President Biden. And that could be uh, sort of a slippery way of saying, well, you know, uh, we we don't think it's as critical as you've reported. But it's also saying that, oh, we haven't actually sent any reports to the Biden administration about Putin's health, which is, of course, ridiculous because they have to respond to what's out there in social media and the news media. The U.S. intelligence community has obviously asked, what do you think about this? And they've produced four reports, as far as I know, from so-called leadership analysts who follow Putin very closely and are very interested in, in, in his health and his well-being, his state of mind. Because after all, everything that's going on in Ukraine right now and virtually everything in the world is waiting on Putin to decide what's going to be the future. But it does seem that there's been a lot of reporting on his disappearance in April. And the assumption is that he was undergoing treatment for cancer in April. So that's pretty solid, isn't it? Yes, it is. I mean, we know that there were negotiations going on between Ukraine and Russia leading up to the end of March. Uh, Those negotiations seem to be moving towards a face-to-face between Putin and President Zelensky. And then the revelations of the massacres in Bukha, north of Kiev, came out. And that pretty much uh, ended the negotiations. And it pretty much also, uh, you know, stopped any movement forward either in Russia or in the Ukraine, uh, for about a month. And, of course, as we got closer to the victory day in Russia, which was May 9th, uh, there were a lot of questions as to what that would be. Would Putin announce a national mobilization? Would Putin uh, declare victory? And, And none of it happened, because I think, in fact, during this time period between April 4th and May 9th, uh, Putin indeed was uh, not uh, uh, ruling with the iron fist that he normally does, that he was either uh, out of commission completely undergoing treatment or he was struggling with whatever it is health-wise that he's struggling with. But as important, Ian, and I say this in my article, is also Putin's hold on power. You know, how, what, where does he stand? And as diplomats have begun to say that Russian diplomats have begun to say that they don't support Putin or they don't support the war, as some Russian oligarchs have stepped forward and said they don't support the war. And clearly, as the sanctions are having a significant impact inside Russia, Putin's hold on power is also under question. And that was a key element of the leadership reporting uh, being, being done by the U.S. intelligence community. And again, I'm speaking with William Arkin, a senior editor at Newsweek and one of America's premier military experts. He's the best-selling author of more than a dozen books, including The Generals Have No Clothes, The Untold Story of Our Endless Wars, and his latest book is On That Day, The Definitive Timeline of 9-11, and he has an article at Newsweek exclusive, Putin Treated for Cancer in April, U.S. Intelligence Report says. But sometime in mid-May, 
there, as you write, a rumor that Kremlin security people had uncovered a Russian plot to assassinate Putin was confirmed sometime in mid-May. What do we know about that? We don't know. We don't really know much more. Uh, I'd, I'm still reporting on that, Ian. I feel like uh, the sources are pretty good. The Ukrainians were the first to uh, report this rumor, and U.S. intelligence seems to have confirmed it. All I can say is that there wasn't a, a plot for an assassination attempt on 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 Putin. But I'm not sure I want to take you know make too much of this. And one of the reasons is is that. I think that we just don't know how often there are assassination attempts on Putin. So I don't know how uh, unusual this might be. But again, it goes to the fact that Putin's uh, rule in Russia, his longevity, his mood, uh, his state of mind are all crucial right now in the ongoing Ukraine war. But in that regard, William Arkin, it does seem that he's determined to win and he's got time and enough artillery ammunition and artillery pieces to pound the country for, you know, a year to come at least. So is that your analysis that in spite of the bravery of the Ukrainians, Putin is determined to win and he may preside over rubble, but he's out to destroy that country? Well, let me say this, Ian. I think that Putin is determined to win, but can he and will he? And I think the answer there is no. In fact, in the past week or so, my military analysis of the war would say that for the first time, I see the prospect of Ukraine actually uh, defeating Russia on the battlefield on pretty much all fronts that are now open in the South and in the East. And we have to remind ourselves as we talk about Russian artillery and Russian capabilities, that right now in the war, it's a density issue more than anything else, which is to say that in this vast country of Ukraine, the size of Texas, we have a very intense battle going on in one tiny corner of it, which is like El Paso, as an example. And so they, you can only stuff so much military into a small area. You can only fire so much artillery and missiles into a small area. That's really where the most intense um, uh, combat is taking place to, to capture the uh, city of Severodonetsk and then cross the, uh, the Seversky River and go further westward to take all of Donbass. This has taken Russia now three months to get this far, and there's no real evidence that they're moving any quicker or will move any quicker. Now you say, okay, well, the war is going to go on forever. And I agree with you that there's a possibility of it dragging on, but there's no possibility that, that, you, that Russia is going to somehow uh, get out of El Paso, if you will, and take the rest of Texas. Um, they're, they may, in fact, take the next city in line, which is Lyshansk. But the truth of the matter is that this is really where the war ends. Russia is just trying to get to the border of Donetsk so that it can declare victory in the Donbass. But that's as far as it goes. Well, apparently, uh, while Russia has concentrated its forces in the Donbass, uh, the Ukrainians are making gains in uh, Kherson. They are making gains in the further in the south and to the west. Um, they've pushed uh, Russian forces away from Mikolaev. Uh, there's no prospect at all of the Russians taking Odessa or getting any further uh, to the west. Uh, the reality is that even in the city of Kherson, there's uh, a pressure on the Russians. And the Russian movement to the north has essentially been stalled now for about a month. So if you look at the war overall, yes, it's true that they managed to finally defeat the Ukrainian defenders in Mariupol. And yes, it's true that they have, after three months, uh, been able to take most of Severodonetsk. But 
we are talking about very small battles in very large areas. And what the Russians have shown from February 24th to the present is that they make inch, inch and meter progress, not sweeping progress. And all of the people who were prognosticating that this was going to be the largest tank war since World War II, that, that the Russians were going to be able to take all of Donbass, you know, in a flash after it announced its offensive on April 18th, are wrong. They were just dead wrong. This offensive that began on April 18th has barely been able to make much progress. And though it's true that the Russians control a large part of Luhansk and Donetsk uh, provinces in Ukraine, the truth of the matter is that when you look at the facts on the ground, Putin can't be looking at an optimistic uh, standpoint, and he can't afford months or years of combat in Ukraine because the sanctions indeed are having an impact. Uh, there is growing domestic unrest inside Russia and dissatisfaction with the war. He's not able to conscript the people that he thought he was. The Russian military is not ready, and nor is it ever regenerated itself to a better capability level. And so all of that says to me that it's going to be based upon everything is going to be based upon what Putin says, what Putin thinks. And contrary to what you just said, Ian, I'll just point out that this week there was movement forward on negotiations. Uh, the Kremlin again said that it was willing for Putin and Zelensky to meet uh, beyond just technical discussions, but uh, actually to talk about uh, the end of the war. And the Turkish president, Erdogan, is trying to facilitate those talks. So there has been movement forward as Putin has seemed to have reemerged from whatever sickness or whatever health problem he was struggling with. So in the last couple of minutes, though, on the broader landscape, though, globally, Putin is, is doing well with the price of oil. He seems to have a de facto alliance with MBS and MBZ, the Saudi and Emirati leaders. And I don't think it's a stretch to suggest that the Emiratis and the Saudis will finance Trump's comeback. And I'm sure Putin, uh, if he's still alive, would be able to offer tech support much more than he did in 2016 now that he feels that his war in Ukraine is actually a war against the United States. So how long do you think the cohesion in the West and with NATO is going to last? Because uh, they are still financing Putin's war machine. Well, you know, the truth is that I, I, I'm puzzled by NATO's reaction. I understand their complete and, and solid support for Ukraine. And, and I think that that's uh, a good thing. But I but overall, uh, the idea that somehow NATO has to be stronger and has to spend more money and buy more arms in order to deal with Russia is, is, is hilarious to me because what Russia has displayed is they have no capacity whatsoever to invade Western Europe, and nor are they really a threat to anyone. Um, and I think that that should be one of the major lessons of the war, and unfortunately it's not. On the larger question of Russia's position in the world, I think that they will never recover under Putin, and uh, there will definitely be a reckoning that will come for Russia uh, once the Ukraine war is over. But I, I see a world in a way that is more optimistic than pessimistic, Ian, in the sense that um, that the Ukraine war will be a turning point for the United States. And it will be a, a time for us to reevaluate uh, what we want and uh, what is the future. And uh, though I think Washington has kind of become a little bit lost in its own verve about the question of the military and the Chinese threat and the future of, of Russia, the truth of the matter is that, that, that what the Ukraine war will prove with a country of 45 million people going up against Russia and doing a valiant defense, is that our whole concept of defense in the future has to change. And that, in fact, invasion is incredibly difficult in the modern era. 
And that territorial defense makes a lot of sense uh, for countries that are on the front lines of being threatened. So to me, when I look at this overall war and I look at the world, I say to myself, maybe we'll come out of it with a different view of defense and that that's a good thing. Well, William Arkin, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian, for having me on again. And again, I've been speaking with William Arkin, who's a senior editor at Newsweek and one of America's premier military experts, whose investigative work has appeared on the front pages of the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Los Angeles Times. Until recently, he was an NBC news analyst and a reporter for 30 years, and he also served in Army Intelligence in West Berlin during the Cold War and has been a consultant to wide-ranging organizations, including the United States Air Force, the United Nations Secretary General, Human Rights Watch, and the Natural Resources Defense Council. And he's the best-selling author of more than a dozen books, including The Generals Have No Clothes, The Untold Story of Our Endless Wars. And his latest book is On That Day, The Definitive Timeline of 9-11. And he has an article in Newsweek exclusive, Putin Treated for Cancer in April, U.S. Intelligence Report says. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into how much the American president will have to bow before the entitled and murderous Prince Mohammed bin Salman, about to be crowned king of Saudi Arabia. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Sarah Lee Whitson, who's the Executive Director of Democracy for the Arab World Now, Dawn. She was formerly the Executive Director of Human Rights Watch's Middle East and North Africa Division, where she oversaw 19 countries with a staff located in 10 countries and led dozens of advocacy and investigative missions throughout the region, focusing on issues of armed conflict, accountability, legal reform, migrant workers, and political rights. And she has published widely on human rights issues in the Middle East, in international and regional media, including the New York Times, Foreign Policy, the Los Angeles Times, and CNN. Welcome to Background Briefing, Sarah Lee Whitson. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, the White House has uh, postponed its trip to Saudi Arabia and Israel that was supposed to happen in sometime in June. They were going to tack it on to an already scheduled trip uh, that Biden had to Germany and Spain this month. And now they're talking about visiting Israel and Saudi Arabia sometime in July for the Gulf Cooperative Council number three summit. But I'm not sure that that's pinned down, and the White House has said they're still working on it. So what do you think might have happened there? Did the Saudis agree to this meeting or not? Uh, It's really hard to say. Um, There have been uh, numerous reports uh, reporting uh, that that they were going to meet and reporting that they were not going to meet, reporting that MBS had agreed to meet, reporting that MBS hadn't agreed to meet. Uh, I imagine that they are still in the thick of negotiations over a number of items. Um, The one card uh, or one of the cards that Biden is holding is a handshake. Um, Another card, of course, is a security agreement with the United States, which Saudi Arabia and UAE want. Um, I suspect that it might be pinned to hopes uh, that President Biden could attend for the coronation of MBS as a new king. Um, there are fresh reports that King Salman uh, is uh, uh, not really functional and um, may uh, technically abdicate the throne if he doesn't outright just die and, and pass the throne on to Mohammed bin Salman and a visit with MBS as king would wash away a little of the uh, shame of Biden having thrown down the gauntlet to say that he wouldn't meet with him um, and create an opening to say, well, but now that he's king, I have to meet with him. But uh, meeting at the GCC number three summit, I'm not sure, Saudi Arabia is, is the host country, so I imagine that meeting would take place in uh, Saudi Arabia, but that's a multilateral meeting of, of, of the various Gulf countries. 
that would be a more fitting forum, wouldn't it? You know, I, I mean, honestly, it's just theatrics and cosmetics. Um, on the surface of it, this is, you know, what's the least uh, a gross way for uh, President Biden to bow his head and kiss the ring, because that's really what's happening. You know, this is President of the United States of America traveling uh, on the pretext of a GCC meeting uh, to offer Mohammed what he wants, which is renormalization and submission. He wants President Biden to submit to him. So perhaps a GCC meeting provides more cover for that. It doesn't make it like a bilateral one-on-one meeting. Um, but everybody knows that this is really what it's about. Well, apparently the um, relatives of victims of uh, September 11th terrorist attack had weighed in this week on Biden, um, saying that he ha- he has to raise accountability issues with uh, MBS if he's to visit Saudi Arabia of uh, Saudi uh, participation or Saudi nationals and various others participating in 9-11. So that's still an open wound. But in general, this is a humiliation no matter what, right? I mean, this is really the tail wagging the dog where this psychotic punk who has obviously no sense of accountability and no uh, an enormous sense of entitlement with absolute power uh, who actually really likes Putin and clearly doesn't like Biden, and they and he's in effect in a de facto alliance with Putin uh, in OPEC plus. So no matter how you look at it, Sarah, isn't this a humiliation for the United States? Obviously, Trump had no problem making Saudi Arabia his first visit, but Biden had laid down a marker saying that he wanted uh, MBS to become a pariah. Uh, it is a humiliation, but I think some of it was sadly plain uh, uh, politicking by President Biden. When President Biden was candidate Biden. He told the American people what they wanted to hear, um, which is that arms sales to Saudi Arabia would stop condemning the grotesque murder of, Muhammad, uh, of Jamal Khashoggi, holding Mohammed bin Salman responsible. Um, this is what was the broad sentiment, not just of Democrats, but the Democrats and Republicans. Um, it was one of the few issues on which Republicans and Democrats were united on uh, under President Trump, which is uh, uh, three different votes to suspend arms sales to Saudi Arabia in the wake of the murder of Jamal Khashoggi and the ongoing war crimes uh, in Yemen. So I think that that was a large motivation uh, for President Biden. He may personally have been morally offended uh, by Mohammed bin Salman's uh, uh, crimes and, 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 you know, just thuggish trespass. Um, but I think right from the get-go, frankly, even before the war in Ukraine, um, we saw the Biden administration capitulating such that their original promise to end arms sales to Saudi Arabia became a nonsensical uh, promise to end offensive weapons sales to Saudi Arabia uh, so that they would only sell them defensive weapons to Saudi Arabia, never explaining to uh, the public just what that distinction actually meant, never explaining to Congress what that distinction actually meant. Um, and that's because uh, uh, Biden is answering to so many interests uh, within the U.S., without the United States, uh, that are demanding, insisting, pushing him uh, to reestablish uh, very close ties with Saudi Arabia, uh, however abhorrent uh, Mohammed bin Salman's conduct. Well, a lot of that pressure is coming from Israel, isn't it? Uh, Absolutely. A great deal of that pressure is coming from Israel. It's been extensively reported on. um, And I think one of the geniuses of the Abraham Accords uh, was having the United States pay for an alliance in the region, an alliance between apartheid Israel and the authoritarian tyrants of the region, uh, 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 the UAE, Bahrain, uh, Morocco, uh, uh, Sudan, uh, uh, and now, of course, imminently Saudi Arabia, um, which, you know, I think would have happened anyway, because they have so much self-interest uh, in uniting their tyranny um, um, with Israel's authoritarian uh, control of Palestinians. Um, but they got the United States to pay for it anyway. And now this alliance, this bloc, uh, is actually stronger 
vis-a-vis the United States than it was before, when it was bilateral relationships of the United States with Egypt, with Israel, with Saudi Arabia, with the UAE. Now, when the U.S. deals with Saudi Arabia, it has to deal with that entire block. So you have Saudi, UAE, Egypt, uh, uh, Israel, all strongly pushing for each other's interests. And again, I'm speaking with Sarah Lee Whitson, who's Executive Director of Democracy for the Arab World Now, Dawn. She was formerly Executive Director of Human Rights Watch's Middle East and North Africa Division, where she oversaw 19 countries with staff located in 10 countries. Well, Saudi Arabia, I mentioned earlier that MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, has closer ties and much more affection for Putin, and so does the, so do the Gulf countries, where they're laundering Russian oligarchs' money and parking their super yachts. But Israel, of course, has been on the fence over Ukraine and absolutely infuriating the Jewish president of uh, Ukraine. And even when Lavrov made an anti-Semitic remark and for which Putin had to apologize, Israel still is essentially sitting on the fence. So it seems, though, that in terms of the Abraham Accords, it's not actually, even for the Saudis, not a, not a propitious time, is it, to make a deal because of the murder of the... Palestinian-American journalist Shireen Abu Akhli. It's pretty clear that that she was assassinated by the Israeli Defense Forces, and at this point, I don't think the U.S. hasn't said anything about it. She is, after all, a U.S. citizen. So, as much as the Abraham Accords are are basically about selling out the Palestinians, and obviously Jared Kushner is taking credit for it, but he was essentially a stenographer for Netanyahu. The long and the short of it is, even the uh, the Saudis are not prepared at this point, it seems, to sell out the Palestinians quite so openly. Uh, to be honest, I don't think Mohammed bin Salman cares much about uh, selling out the Palestinians um, and uh, may well be concerned about uh, internal Saudi popular discontent about selling out the Palestinians. Um, it's as much about the Palestinians as it, as it is about Al-Aqsa Mosque uh, and uh, Israeli Jewish trespass and desecration of Al-Aqsa Mosque, uh, deliberate provocation with the Jerusalem march, uh, uh, you know, very visible, uh, 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 ugly assaults uh, on Palestinian men, women and children. Um, so, no, it's not a great time. It's not just about Shirin al uh, um, but uh, there are uh, a lot of other factors that make it uh, unpleasant and distasteful at a moment when Mohammed bin Salman wants to be coronated king smoothly without hiccups. So uh, uh, moving too fast to normalization with Saudi Arabia risks hiccuping what he hopes will be a clear transition, a smooth transition uh, for him to take the crown. Um, but it could also uh, upend domestic resistance. Uh, it might be an insult too great to bear uh, to see Israeli militias, uh, uh, militia-backed civilians traipsing around through and through holy sites in Jerusalem. So just in the last couple of minutes then, uh, Sarah, I don't know whether the White House is naive or whether they can make some kind of counteroffer to the Saudis. Obviously, Biden desperately wants to get the price of oil lowered, which is driving inflation uh, before the midterms, and he's getting slammed and his poll numbers keep sinking. But I'm not sure. It seems like a wasted effort because surely MBS and MBZ are completely in... They're, first of all, they're having a de facto alliance with Putin against the United States, but they're also waiting for Trump, aren't they? They're financing Trump's comeback. How else would you interpret that Jared Kushner was given $2 billion by MBS and, and the former Secretary of Treasury Mnuchin was given $1 billion? So it seems like they've already made a $3 billion down payment on bringing back Trump. So why are they even bothering with Biden? Well, well, I think uh, uh, two things. One is that uh, the Biden administration's moves to patch things up with Saudi Arabia uh, isn't just about the price of oil. It is also about the uh, pending elections and the Biden administration wanting to demonstrate uh, to the Gulf states, to Saudi Arabia, to Israel, uh, uh, to the UAE, that they can be as good as uh, the Trump administration in terms of continuing uh, arms sales continuing to provide protection 
uh, to them. And the one big card that the Biden administration is dangling in front of them right now is a security agreement, a security agreement that Saudi and UAE want that will commit the U.S. to providing U.S. forces to defending uh, these two countries should they come under attack. Uh, uh, that is the golden ticket that they're offering. I don't think it will be enough to ever persuade uh, uh, the Saudis or the Emirates or even Israel for that matter uh, to invest in the Democrats as opposed to investing in the Trump administration. Um, but that is uh, sadly um, what this also appears to be as much as it appears to be to reassure the defense industry and the defense establishment that the spigot of arms sales uh, will continue to flow to the number one and number two biggest clients of American weapons, Saudi Arabia and the UAE. Uh, I, I'm sad to say um, that this is a very mercenary transaction on both sides of the ledger. Uh, the Saudis, the Emiratis, the Israelis are not committing to the United States uh, uh, and hedging, as you were noting, with Putin and, and maintaining their relationships with uh, 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 Russian billionaires and, and, and so forth. But the Biden administration is playing these games as well uh, and wanting to satisfy its various constituencies, none of whom happen to be uh, the American people. With respect to the investment in Kushner's affinity partners, I should note that this week, uh, Congresswoman uh, Maloney announced that she was going to launch an investigation uh, into potential breaches of, of U.S. laws, federal laws uh, that prohibit conflict of interest and, and solicitation of uh, uh, business um, with uh, uh, countries, governments, states, businesses uh, while in office to explore the extent to which uh, Kushner was cooking up this affinity partners while he was still in office or so closely out of office that it overlapped. Um, this is something that my organization has very strongly been pushing for. And we don't just want a congressional investigation. We want a DOJ investigation of what is a, a very apparent, rotting, stinking conflict of interest um, where previously we had American government officials uh, selling American interests uh, to merely domestic lobbyists, be they uh, defense industry lobbyists, uh, uh, energy company lobbyists, and so forth. Now, in an unprecedented manner, uh, we have American government officials selling U.S. interests, selling government policy decisions to foreign governments and foreign government interests. It's scandalous, it's shameful, and it's very dangerous for our country. Well, Sarah Lee Whitson, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Sarah Lee Whitson, who's Executive Director of Democracy for the Arab World Now, Dawn. She was formerly the Executive Director of Human Rights Watch's Middle East and North Africa Division, where she oversaw 19 countries with staffs located in 10 countries. And she joined us from a sailboat off an island in Croatia. We're going to take a brief station break, go back and go to the UK, which is in the midst of a festival of pomp and ceremony honoring Queen Elizabeth's Platinum Jubilee. Welcome back, I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now from the UK is Polly Toynbee, a columnist for The Guardian, who was formerly the BBC Social Affairs Editor, columnist and Associate Editor of The Independent, co-editor of The Washington Monthly, and a reporter and feature writer for The Observer. She's the co-author of Dismembered, How the Attack on the State Harms Us All. And her latest article at The Guardian is, For today, even Republicans like me can put up with the pomp with a drink in hand. Welcome to Background Briefing, Polly Toynbee. Hello. Hello. So, there, I don't know how many drinks you've had in hand at all. The ceremonies for the Queen Elizabeth Platinum Jubilee began on Thursday, and over the weekend, Friday and Saturday, apparently there have been thousands and thousands of block parties uh, throughout the UK. So, as a Republican, did you venture out and attend any of these parties? 
Well, the truth is that if you walk around London, you don't see very much of it, a bit in some shops. And of course, if you go to sort of Piccadilly and those kinds of shops, when you walk in ordinary streets, very few houses have any flags or bunting out. Um, I mean, naturally, television cameras go where something's happening. They don't go where something's not happening. Uh, and in fact, you know, a poll just at the beginning of, of all this said only 14% of people were planning to do something uh, platinum jubilee oriented. In other words, having a street party or organizing something or hanging out flags. Most people, it's a great bank holiday because we don't have many in this country and it's two extra days of holidays. So, yeah, people are having a good time. And of course, they turn on the news and they see these terrific parades and processions and the guards. They put on a great display. And I think people enjoy all of that. But actual activities and participation, not that much. I mean, the course all around Buckingham Palace, it's jam-packed, you know, Saturday, big concert uh, outside Buckingham Palace itself. And lots of people turn up for those things so that there's plenty for the cameras to see. But there's an awful lot of millions of people who are just enjoying themselves. And as you point out in your article at The Guardian for today, even Republicans like me can put up with the pump with a drinking hand. You say that there's no doubting public admiration and affection for the Queen herself. She's been absent for the last few days, has she not, from these celebrations? She's plainly not very strong and has been suffering, they call it discomfort. I imagine that in her case, that's probably quite serious pain for her to not even go on Saturday to her favourite event, which is the Epsom Derby. Uh, So uh, I think she must be poorly, uh, but nobody ever knows or says exactly what's wrong with her. I think there is a sense of genuine uh, affection for her. I think there is a sense, particularly, just of the sheer length of time. I mean, 70 years, you know, it's, it's nearly everybody's whole lifetime. And it is a moment... Better than a funeral, you know, it'll all happen again when she finally does die. But better than a funeral, really, just contemplate the passing of time. And there she has been as the backdrop to everything that has happened to us, good and bad, during those those many, many years. So it has meaning, even for Republicans. You you would read Shakespeare to listen to how people mark out eras by reigns, if you are unfortunate enough to have a monarch, that's how you spell out time. And this is certainly a very long and momentous time for this country. But could it end? In other words, I don't think there's anything like the enthusiasm for the Queen that there is for her successors. And he's been waiting around for some time, Prince Charles, and the royal family has this peculiar kind of symbiotic relationship with the tabloids so for all their pomp and ceremony and alleged dignity there've been Fergie and Andrew and all kinds of scandals so is there an expectation in the country that Prince Charles will become king and how do you think that's going to play? Well he certainly will become king because there isn't a split second not a hair's breadth between the breath leaving the queen And uh, Vivat Rex ringing out, he is instantly king from that moment. We are not allowed one moment to stop and say, hang on, should we think about what we want to do next? Should we at least have some form of consent for this? Certainly Prince Charles is nothing like as popular as his mother. Uh, And certainly the popularity of the monarchy as uh, as an institution has been waning. I mean, it's dropped 10% in in the last 10 years. It is still 60%, 27% in favour of abolition of the monarchy, but it's growing all the time and young people are considerably less enthusiastic. Although what we face, which is less popular, when she came to the throne, she was a very beautiful uh, young woman with two young children and uh, it, it seemed like a sort of new beginning. What we're going to get now is three kings in a row who will probably all be very old when they, quite old, when they take over. I mean, if Prince Charles lives as long as his mother, by the time William takes over, he'll be well into late into middle age. 
And then if he lasts a long time, then Prince George will be also quite elderly by the time he takes over. The proposition of sort of three uh, middle-aged, old, oldish men in a row may not seem as attractive. Depends, I suppose, whether the family can generate as much gossip and soap opera-like uh, mythology as has been going on in recent years. Uh, you know, the drama of Diana. Uh, I don't think many soap operas could do as well as that. The whole of her life, her sad life. But um, I think there will be considerably less sense of stability once the Queen has gone. And again, I'm speaking with Polly Toynbee, who's a columnist for The Guardian, who was formerly the BBC's social affairs editor, columnist and associate editor of The Independent, co-editor of The Washington Monthly, and a reporter and feature writer for The Observer. She is the co-author of Dismembered, How the Attack on the State Harms Us All, and her latest article at The Guardian is, For Today, Even Republicans Like Me Can Put Up With the Pomp With a Drink in Hand. So, but the UK, I mean, first of all, the Queen as the head of state, one of the anomalies is, you know, here in the United States, for example, the military and the government service and intelligence services, etc., all pledge allegiance to the Constitution, whereas in the UK, the military and intelligence others pledge their loyalty to the Queen, do they not? So, it makes it very difficult because we don't have a constitution or not a proper written one. What we need, not what you've got, I think. I don't think anybody would go for your option. What we need is the sort of European option, which is a president who is head of state, but is the guarantor of the constitution. And we've never felt that more strongly than now when we've had a rogue uh, Prime Minister, who has been willing to tear up conventions and tear up things that people thought were rules, tear up his own ethics standards, rewritten them, uh, prorogues Parliament illegally. He's done extraordinary things that, you know, you would think unconstitutional. Had we, If we had a, an, a dignified elected president, they would have said, sorry, you can't do that. Um, they would have been there. The Queen can't do that because we don't have a constitution and because she has to obey what her prime minister says. Uh, there would be a real constitutional crisis if the Queen started to do things herself. Uh, but she doesn't have the power. It's not that the Queen's too powerful. She's not powerful enough. You take an Irish prime minister, they've had a president, they've had dignified presidents. They just do very little except the honorific things unless there is a constitutional crisis. And that's what we need, because we've been having one constitutional crisis after another under Boris Johnson, and nobody to protect us from that. He has absolute power. Well, the Queen did get involved in a constitutional crisis in Australia back in the 1970s, where Prime Minister Whitlam was essentially sacked in a coup. But the Australians subsequently, a few years back, did have a referendum on becoming a republic, and they voted it down. Uh, yep. On the basis that uh, if the Australian people were able to elect the head of state, they would elect Carly Minogue. So, um, <laughs> which seems like a <laughs> an odd objection. But where's the Republican movement now? I mean, a few years back, I spoke with Graham Smith, and it felt like he was a bit of a voice in the wilderness. But now, I believe. The Republic movement in the UK have been sending poster vans around the country emblazoned with Make Elizabeth the Last. So yes. is there any more traction there? Yes, some. I mean, you know, you couldn't, you know, 60% of people want to keep want to keep the monarchy. 27% of people want to abolish it. At least. And uh, it's certainly on the move. But you couldn't say there was a strong popular movement to abolish the monarchy. Uh, I'm afraid that's that's not the case. But this idea that Australians would elect Kylie Minogue, I mean, you look at who gets elected presidents in dignified countries across Europe, and including Ireland, they're always really good people. There's Mary Robinson, we have Michael O'Higgins now, now in, in, in Ireland. These are sensible, sober people who take their job very seriously. Nobody has been elected, electing uh, sort of pop stars or celebrities or Kardashians to be their um, president. So there's no reason to think Australia or Great Britain would be any stupider than the rest of the world in choosing sensible dignitaries to be a, an honorific president. 
So you touched on Boris Johnson without naming him. <laughs> so <laughs> let's talk about this rogue prime minister who seems to be, I mean, first of all, he's a bit of a Trump clone. Uh, he's, after all, one of the main forces behind Brexit, which has to be one of the greatest geopolitical disasters in history. And fallout from it is still painful. And uh, the whole thing was such a, you know, shooting yourself in the foot as putting it mildly. Yeah. Uh, how does this guy get away with it? I mean, we, we asked the same questions over here about Donald Trump. How did people vote for this guy in the first place? And how does he keep getting away with it? And, you know, God help us, he may well be the next president. Well, it was um, all to do with Brexit. Uh, the Conservative Party got really taken over, infiltrated and taken over by the Brexit Party. Uh, and a great many of their MPs are people who would not have been selected in the past, uh, in the the days of, uh, you know, Harold McMillan or people like that, sort of reasonably moderate conventional conservatives. They've been taken over by ideologues uh, and obsessives. Uh, Boris Johnson himself uh, wasn't quite sure if he was going to be for or against Brexit. He wrote a column to go either way. And then he decided that his best chance of becoming leader and prime minister was to go for Brexit because the party had become Brexit and they would select him. So they hired him to be their Brexit champion because he's a great campaigner. He'd been a successful campaigner to be mayor of London. So, uh, and he was happy to be to go along with whoever would put him in power. Uh, I'm sure he would have gone the other way had the majority of the party looked as if they were going to select an anti-Brexit person. So for him, it was just a matter of calculation. For them, the party really is pretty fantastic. I mean, there are some non-Brexit, but not many. Most of them have been ejected by Boris Johnson or they left of their own accord. The moderates have mostly gone. And that's really that one issue and the ability of that campaign to seize enough of the public imagination. After all, you know, Brexit only won by a very small percentage. Nevertheless, they did win. And uh, they won really because they had Boris Johnson to do it because he was a great campaigner. He seems to have lost that now, but he had it then. So that's how it happened. And I think now um, the Conservative Party is in deep trouble because he has become very, very singularly unpopular, exceptionally unpopular, and especially with women. Women are, are, are most strongly against Boris Johnson. Men are too. I mean, he has become a very un unpopular uh, prime minister. And his party are in a kind of agony because... His MPs are mostly Brexiteers, ideologues, fairly fanatical. So they kind of want to keep him as their man. On the other hand, they're quite frightened that if he leads them into the next election, the way things are, if there was an election tomorrow, very large numbers of them would lose their seats altogether. Uh, they don't really know any longer how to be moderate, how to move back towards the centre and bring back you know, conventional conservative voters who have now fled. And so they're really in quite a quandary because the party itself has divorced itself from the mainstream of conservatism in the country, which really isn't fanatic. I mean, on the whole, they are uh, concerned about the environment. They don't want to tear up regula European regulations about health and safety, about uh, decent working conditions. These things that uh, all of these Brexiteers want to do don't really go either with new Tory voters who were Labour voters who for the first time voted for Boris because of Brexit. Uh, they don't like the rest of that stuff. And nor, nor really of conventional southern, uh, you know, home counties, uh, more, uh, more wealthy conventional conservatives. They don't like that stuff either. They care about the environment. They mind about dirty rivers, dirty beaches, dirty air. Uh, and a lot of these Tory MPs, Brexiters, one of their main reasons for Brexit was to tear up regulations, to have a libertarian, uh, no health and safety kind of society, not popular with most voters. Well, just in closing, Britain is, of course, has become a very multicultural society. And it seems as if in the long run, the royal family, unless they... Uh, somehow can embrace multiculturalism more and 
the tabloids really went after Megan, who I think to a lot of uh, minorities in the UK seemed like maybe a breath of fresh air in terms of uh, joining this otherwise white family. Is that a factor, do you think? The whole tabloid attacks on her and then her their counterattacks on Oprah suggesting that members of the royal family were racist. I'm sure that turned a lot of people off. I think it probably did. I think they missed an opportunity. I think Megan was a great breath of fresh air. Uh, I mean, I don't know if she's difficult or not. All these stories say she's difficult. However difficult she was, they needed to do whatever it took to keep her and Harry in. And maybe they'll get them back again. I don't know. Uh, seems to me not likely. Who knows? You know, We know nothing about what's in any of their states of mind. All of it is gossip. But certainly... Uh, somebody today was putting together the stories about Meghan versus stories about Kate. And sometimes for doing or wearing exactly the same things, they said, for instance, how terrible Meghan is because she keeps kind of demonstrating her baby bump. And on the other hand, they show a picture of Kate when she was pregnant, saying how wonderful that she flaunts her baby bump. I mean, everything was set pitted one against the other. I mean, the British tabloids are poisonous and toxic. And they just decided to hate her, but maybe because they're racist, maybe just because it made a good story to have a new villain. I don't know the reason why, but it's been very destructive. And plainly, the royal family didn't do enough to protect her. They didn't call in those editors or publicly uh, stand up and say, the press is behaving disgustingly. We want nothing to do with it. They should have done something. They never do do that because they always feel it's better to never apologise, never explain. But uh, they didn't protect her well enough. Well, Polly Toynbee, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Polly Toynbee, who's a columnist for The Guardian, who was formerly BBC's social affairs editor, columnist and associate editor of The Independent, co-editor of The Washington Monthly, and a reporter and features writer for The Observer. She's also the co-author of Dismembered, How the Attack on the State Harms Us All. And her latest article at The Guardian is, For today, even Republicans like me can put up with the pomp with a drink in hand. And she joined us from the UK. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine One more